Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. The world's famous Australian-born American violinist and composer Frederick Max Fitz Chrysler earned a fortune with his concerts and compositions, but he generously gave most of it away. So when he discovered an exquisite violin on one of his trips, he wasn't able to buy it. Later, having raised enough money to meet the asking price, he returned to the cellar hoping to purchase the beautiful instrument, but to his great dismay it had been sold to a collector. Chrysler made his way to the new owner's home and offered to buy the violin. The collector said it had become his prized possession and he wouldn't sell it, even though he couldn't play the instrument. Keenly disappointed, Chrysler was about to leave when he had an idea. Could I play the instrument once more before it's consigned to silence? he asked. Permission was granted, and the great virtuoso filled the room with such heart-moving music that the collector's emotions were deeply stirred. I have no right to keep that to myself, he exclaimed. It's yours, Mr Chrysler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. While the Christian has no rights to keep the gospel to himself, he must share it with those around him. If you think Christianity faces an uphill battle today, just look at the daunting task the early church faced. How did pain and persecution in the early days of Christianity help spread the gospel? And how did the convictions of first century Christians conquer the world? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with author and evangelist Tony Anthony. A faithful witness is one who's credible on a particular subject because of their experience, which shows in their convictions. Every believer is commissioned to bring people to Jesus. The Lord is not asking us to do something impossible or impractical, but what does it mean and how do we go about it? Conviction is a powerful motivator. And it's what's needed today in a world filled with difficult questions and very few answers. What kind of process is needed to bring a person to faith in Christ? Let's join Tony as he breaks down the process of drawing a non-Christian to Christ through six easy-to-understand steps using an agricultural model. So how does the tea and coffee taste now? Is there still salt in that sugar bowl? Now that we've exposed the devil and his lies, now that we've unearthed his sly manoeuvres to creep under the heresy radar of the church and pollute the minds of the faithful. You know, we previously considered the damage of subscribing to the lie that defining evangelism is the winning of souls. And would you be surprised, though, to find that our great adversary does not stop there? There is indeed another wrong definition of evangelism that must be exposed in the war over souls. You know, evangelism is the proclamation of the gospel. We've established that. We now recognise that as a clear statement of truth. How about the assertion, though, that evangelism is any activity that brings a non-Christian closer to the point of conversion? Any activity that brings a non-Christian closer to the point of conversion. Well, it's missiologist Dr. James Engel who developed a scale to explain how a person comes to faith. According to Engel's scale, all people start at minus eight, with no knowledge of the gospel. And as their knowledge and understanding of the gospel increases, minus seven, minus six, minus five, and so on, they move towards the point of conversion at zero. And as they mature in their faith, they move up the scale to the right of zero, one, two, three, plus five, and beyond. Now, unfortunately, this excellent message of Engel's scale has been mistaken. 
Indeed, it appears it has been muddied by the devil in a number of his devious schemes to spin the church just one small but very dangerous degree of the truth. And we spoke about that previously, about it being one degree of the truth. Engel was clear that although a person being drawn to faith is a process, only the act of preaching the gospel is evangelism. Yet, talk to many Christians, in fact, many leaders, and it's easy to see that a bogus idea prevails at the heart of the church. The muddied message in the minds of many sincere believers is that any Christian activity that draws a non-Christian closer to the point of conversion is evangelism. A small error, perhaps, but this perfectly formed deception is assimilated with catastrophic consequences. Now, this might be better understood if we examine something more of the process of what it means to draw a non-Christian to Christ. So let me try to break that down for you. If you can just picture, you know, a very simple, basic six steps, and we'll use an agricultural analogy. Step one, ploughing. Step two, sowing. Step three, watering. Step four, growing. Step five, harvesting. And step six, threshing. Let's start with the first one, ploughing. Now, ploughing activities are those that prepare the hearts of non-Christians to receive the seed of the gospel. They might include prayer and intercession, praise and worship, fasting, or things that are visible to a non-Christian, such as good works, community projects, friendship, counselling, being a good example of a godly life, perhaps exhibiting a miraculous answer to prayer, giving words of knowledge, and so on. Such ploughing activities really are vital. After all, unploughed ground, hardened ground, will hardly yield a good harvest, will it? Ploughing is an essential part of the process. You know, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, When the ploughman ploughs and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Here, the Apostle Paul is using the natural world to illustrate a beautiful and simple spiritual reality. You know, the people of the New Testament knew the importance of preparing land before planting seeds. Plowing activities by Christians make up this same crucial first step. Preparation is absolutely necessary if there's to be in any harvest in the days to come. But are these plowing activities evangelism? That's the question. And the answer is no, they're not. And the danger is that if we define them as evangelism, it's likely that most people in the church believe themselves to be doing evangelism already. That's the natural conclusion. They'll say, yes, we're doing our bit for evangelism. But hopefully you can spot the glaring error, the crucial missing element that is evangelism. There's no proclamation of the gospel. The second step in the process of drawing a non-Christian to Christ is sowing. And the author and preacher Lawrence Singlehurst offers a wonderful discussion on this in his highly acclaimed book, Sowing, Reaping, Keeping, People-Sensitive Evangelism. I highly recommend this book to read. And in that book, he explores what it means to sow the seed of faith, to reap the harvest when the seed of faith has taken root, and to nurture the faith as it grows. Now, to sow is to proclaim the gospel. To sow is to communicate the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. When we use our words, this way we're engaging in cosmic power. You really must believe that. You know, we might think of ourselves as stuttering, stammering, faltering human beings. But if we stand back and consider the gift of language and our ability to communicate, it is really quite mind-blowing. Language is a prime factor that sets us above other species. 
Through our words and communications, great wonders have been created. Laws have been established. Knowledge has been passed on through generations. History has been documented. Great people and events have been celebrated. Through the gift of language, we give glory back to God. We sing or shout his praises. We worship him. We petition him in prayer. And we're sometimes even given new heavenly language specifically for this purpose. Of course, we know that God himself created the universe by speaking it into being. With words, Jesus defeated the temptation of the devil, calmed the storm. He healed the centurion's servant. In Romans 1.16, Paul spells it out when he says the gospel is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, first the Jew and then the Gentile. This verse points to, uh, forwards to chapter 3, verse 2 as well, when Paul speaks of the Jews being entrusted with the very words of God. When we proclaim the gospel, we're joining with creation in declaring God's greatness. Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. We only have to look up at a star-filled night sky and it speaks to us of the omnipotence of God, doesn't it? Creation cries out in testament to his power. And when we use language to share the gospel, we too join in this cosmic declaration of his glory. Gifted with the power of speech and writing, we have such a supreme, amazing purpose to communicate the way of redemption and reunion with Almighty God. You know, when we proclaim the gospel, we're sowing the seed, an action that is dependent upon, but very distinct to the act of ploughing. Paul clearly recognised this in his dealings with the early believers. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, he made it very clear. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Who made it grow? God made it grow. We've got to remember that. We can't grow anything. We can plant the seed, we can water it, but God makes it grow. It's very important to make that distinction between ploughing and sowing, but we should be sure not to esteem one more than the other. They're both equally as important. You know, we've got to be careful to recognise them for what they are and to guard against labelling one as the other. That's the key issue. In many cases, churches have unwittingly drifted into focusing almost completely on ploughing without mobilising Christians to actually speak out the gospel message. You know, acts of kindness are imperative for into the warmth of an open heart a seed can really be sown. Nevertheless, if a seed is never planted, even the most beautifully ploughed fields will remain forever barren. Naturally, when the farmer has ploughed and prepared his land and planted his seeds, the next important step is to water. Again, this provides an important parallel in the process of drawing someone to Christ. You know, when the seed of the gospel is sown, it's then vital to provide good conditions for that seed now to grow. Such activities might include prayer and intercession, praise and worship, fasting, good works. In fact, many of the same activities that come under the ploughing list that I gave you earlier. When a person begins to explore the gospel and its implications for them, they undoubtedly look to the example of Christians. With this knowledge, we should always be attentive and on guard knowing that we, the body of Christ on earth, are the flesh of the, of, of the watering and feeding process itself. You know, I heard a story of one church that invited a young couple to take an alpha course, a very, very good course where you can learn about Christianity. Um, 
sorry, we won't be able to attend, they said. We've got young children and no babysitter. Lovingly, the church gathered together and sorted out a babysitter rota so that the couple could do the course. Well, after a few weeks, the couple started attending church and making great friends as they continued with the Alpha course. One night, they needed a babysitter so that they could go out socially. But to their disappointment, they found that the people in the babysitting rota were only willing to help out for the Alpha meetings, not for any social events. So we return again to Jesus and his story of the Good Samaritan. You know, the man who went out of his way, who gave more than he needed to, uh, you know, in an illustration of love your neighbour as yourself. And the point's that for something to grow, we need to keep watering, don't we? Keep tending to the young plants, keep providing good conditions to aid growth. And then we've got growing. Now, growing is a supernatural work. It's a supernatural work of saving souls done by the Father and the Holy Spirit. We can plough, we can sow, but we're kidding ourselves if we believe that someone becoming a Christian is entirely down to our efforts. Jesus was clear on this matter, as recorded in John 6.65. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And later in the Gospel of John, Jesus also makes clear the Holy Spirit's part in bringing a person to the point of recognition. John 16 verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. You know, many times um, I remember Sarah was planting in the garden beans when our children were, were, well, our boys were young when they were children. You know, they always enjoyed putting together little pots of compost, pushing in the beans and checking each day as they watered it. And they were waiting to see what was going to happen next, hoping to see the first shoots appear. Really exciting stuff for children, especially. Now, usually within a few short weeks, they're rewarded with a little plant ready to put out in the garden to flourish. Sometimes, however, as any gardener will testify, there's a pot that remains barren. Quite often that's the case for me when I'm planting things in the garden. Um, The soil was the same. The beans came from the same batch. The pots were watered and cared for just the same. But for some unknown reason, no shoot appeared. A mystery, (laughs) you know, a harsh reality and ultimately an illustration that all we can do is provide the right conditions. We can prepare the soil, we can sow the seed, but the matter of growth is in the hands of a higher power. Our fifth step is the metaphorical process of drawing someone to Christ, which is harvesting. This is adding new Christians to the body of Christ. Harvesting, it seems, occurs in two ways. Firstly, God can harvest without us. It's quite within his power, I can assure you, and within his will to draw a person into the church without any intervention from anyone else in the, in the body. <laughs> you know, there are many documented stories of people experiencing the word of God directly, usually through a dramatic dream or vision. Without any contact with Christians, many have become followers of Christ through a direct encounter with him. And such reports are marvellous. They're compelling testimonies to the fact that God can and does intervene directly with humankind, just as he did in Bible times. More often, however, God in love with his children chooses to use the body of Christ, that is us, in the harvesting process. When we invite non-Christians to become followers of Jesus, we are again involved in this wonderful cosmic plan to draw mankind back to God. What an honour. I mean, does God need us to do this? No. Sometimes when people ask us to do something, it's because they really need our help. But not the case with God. In fact, sometimes I wonder what he's thinking. 
asking me to help in the task of bringing people to him. Surely he doesn't need me. Surely he can do a much better job without me. Yet he asks me to do it. It's as though he's saying, I love you and you're part of my family now. So get involved in the family business, in the family work. In God's divine wisdom and power, he allows me to take part. And amazingly, he seems to delight in my pathetic efforts. I remember when my eldest son Ethan was only two years old and Sarah suggested we build a playhouse in our garden. I I didn't get too much time at home with the family and I could see this would be a huge task. (laughs) Sure enough, I realised Sarah had marked out the entire weekend. It wasn't exactly my idea of a relaxing time, but I went out and bought the wood and other materials and became a man with a mission in the garden. I was focused and determined. It was going to be the best playhouse ever. As soon as I began to cut the wood, Ethan bounced up, dressed up in his Bob the Builder outfit, complete with plastic hammer and various other tools. Soon he was tapping the wood, tipping out the box of nails, tapping my head, <laughs> causing numerous hazards and generally getting in the way. He was two years old. You know, I tried the usual distraction techniques, but found myself getting more and more frustrated. Look, Ethan, just go away, go to your bedroom and play or something. Can't you see I'm trying to do this for you? I said in exasperation. Instantly, the smile dropped from his little face and his lip began to quiver. He turned and walked suddenly back towards the house. I began to feel terrible. How could I be so mean to him? He just wanted to join in, didn't he? Come on, Ethan, I'm sorry. I called him back and, you know, look, I really need your help now. I'm ready to hammer some nails in. In a split second, Ethan, back at my side, beaming as I held a nail for him to bash. It's not working, Daddy, it's not going in. Well, hit it harder then, Ethan. And so he bashed the nail harder and harder. Come on, you can do it. He hit harder and harder. No, Daddy, it won't do it. He said as the plastic hammer began to puncture on the nail head. Daddy, I really need the big hammer. That'll do it. Okay, I relented, but be careful. I said, passing him my hammer while he was still holding the nail in place. But before I could even think about it, Ethan raised the hammer high above his head and brought it crashing down. Of course, it missed the nail and it hit my finger very hard as well. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Ethan cried. It really hurts, but I tried not to let Ethan see how much. Don't worry. Let's carry on, I said through gritted teeth. Ethan's smile returned and for a few more moments he busied himself trying to hammer in more nails and generally passing me tools I didn't really need. Like all young children, he had a very short attention span, so it wasn't long before he wandered off in the direction of the house anyway, leaving me to complete the job and nurse my injuries. Now interestingly, some time later, you know, some friends came to visit and we went into the garden. That's the house I built with Daddy, said Ethan proudly. I must admit, it pulled me up sharp. Part of me was thinking, no, you didn't build the house. Ethan, you bust my finger. (laughs) I built the house, I was thinking to myself. But I realised that for all my frustration, something very important had happened that day. As we put that house together, we had actually made a memory. I realised that whenever Ethan looks at the ramshackle pins together planks of wood, he'll think, that's the house I built with my dad. The truth is, I didn't need him to help me, actually. I'd have a, probably done a better job, you know, without him being around. I probably wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't have had a sore finger. But Ethan and I working together is what makes us family. It's the same thing when God turns to us and says, here you are, have a go, pick up the hammer, go into the world and preach the gospel. The only difference is that we didn't hit the nail into his finger. We've drove nails right through his hands and his bare feet.
You know, friends, harvesting is a family thing. God doesn't need us to do it. Of course he doesn't. But when we join in, we're being part of our creator's business, building for our family's future. Isn't it disgraceful then the way we have almost turned evangelism into a somewhat of a taboo word? Sometimes I perceive it's one of those ugly churchy words that we awkwardly dismiss and put to one side. Wouldn't it be amazing though if we could just be like an energized and enthusiastic child, excitedly helping our father God build his house? You know, as any farmer will testify, the harvest is not the end of the process. Once the crop is gathered in, this is where the process of threshing starts. In drawing a person to Christ, we can see this as the process of discipling, of bringing new believers to maturity so that they begin to flourish and in turn engage those six aspects of drawing others to Christ. Again, consider each of the Ephesians chapter 4 verses 11 to 12 ministry gifts. You know, it says it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. Now, each of these gifts, and be careful here to think of gifts, not specific people, each of these gifts will mainly focus on one or more steps in that, those six-step process that we spoke about. And those steps included ploughing, sowing, watering, growing, harvesting, and threshing. Now, only God can do the growing, step four. The evangelists will do typically step two and step five, sowing the seeds and harvesting. And the gift of apostleship, teaching, pastoring and prophecy will focus on ploughing the ground, watering the seed and threshing, or shall we say discipleship. Apostles, teachers, pastors and prophets will primarily focus on these elements, ploughing, watering and threshing. But remember, only God does the growing. Meanwhile, remember the, the evangelists, those with the gift of evangelism, irrespective of what job or position they might actually hold in the church, they will focus on sowing and harvesting. However, in our threshing, our discipleship programs, it is vital that Christians are trained in all areas. If pastors and church leaders do not include ongoing training in how to proclaim or spread the gospel for everyone in their congregation, they are running glaringly deficient discipleship programs. I mean, imagine a farming academy specialising in training arable farmers. Imagine then that the academy fails to train them in how to sow wheat seed or fails to emphasise the importance of sowing. Well, the curriculum is blatantly and deficient and the academy is a sham. And so it is with our churches. After all, as disciples, we are apprentices or learners, aren't we? We are apprentices of the Lord Jesus and the apostles of the early church. What was one of the main priorities of their work? The proclamation of the gospel, of course. So how can we say that our churches are making disciples when so many fail in both teaching people how to spread the gospel and in emphasising that this task is most integral in our walk with God? You know, ultimately, the point of using this farming analogy and breaking down into these six steps is only to illustrate that a person being drawn to Christ certainly is a process with many varied contributing factors. Evangelism is an event that occurs within that process. All evangelism is mission, but not all mission is evangelism. You could say that all evangelism is outreach, but not all of our outreach programs are evangelism. Do you and your church have all six steps covered? Well, if so, great. 
But are you plowing? Are you sowing and watering? Do you see God's growing the individuals? And are you working alongside him in the harvest? Are you being trained and are you training others so the harvest will increase? Are you trying to emanate Jesus in your activities? You know, we can plough the soil and we can water it, but if we never sow anything, all we're going to end up with is mud. What does mud represent? Mighty, unbalanced discipleship. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us, or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.